The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, episode 485 for Monday, January 27th, 2014. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in some questions, you send in some tips, you send in cool stuff found. We answer your questions, we share your tips, we share cool stuff found, and together we all try to learn a little something new about the Mac and other Apple products here in Durham, New Hampshire. Back in Durham, New Hampshire after a red eye last night, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. And we have a special guest today. That's Jim. right. Hello, here calling in from Erie, Pennsylvania for the first time. It's MGG Jim or Jim Tannis. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Good. So Jim uh, runs techreview.com, T-E-K-R-E-V-U-E.com. Uh, a great site that uh, that certainly has an uh, an Apple angle, but, but also covers things beyond Apple. Uh, but... Listeners of this show may know Jim as, as he said, MGG Jim on Twitter. He is the one who has uh, for years taken the stuff that we've discussed here in the show and put it up as MGG answers on MacObserver.com for us. So Jim is a longtime member of the Mac Geek Gab family. And Jim, today we have you here because we're going to talk about uh, managing and ripping and processing your your home videos or your your videos for your your media library at home. Uh, but we've also got you here for the whole show. So uh, so I'm stoked about that. It's the part of our 2014 endeavor to have more guests. And I couldn't have thought of a better person to uh, to start with. Otherwise, we would have had somebody else. No. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dave. Yeah, no, it's It's good to have you. All right. Let's um, but let's let's get rolling with this. And 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 let's just jump in, John, to a uh, to our normal question mode here. We'll get rolling. I am. I. I flew in on the red eye last night, John. Actually, before we go through the questions, I sh- we should talk about this. So this uh, this past Friday was the 30th anniversary of the Mac. And on Saturday, as we mentioned, uh, on the 25th, they had this big event out in Cupertino at the Flint Center, which is where Steve Jobs, 30 years prior, had introduced the Mac to the world. And the uh, there was this great event with a bunch of panels happening. Uh, there, there was a, a panel that had a lot of people that were around Apple in the very early days, including Dan Kotke. Uh, that John Markoff from the New York Times moderated. And then Stephen Levy moderated a panel of, uh, I think it was six of the original engineers on the Mac, including Bill Atkinson and Andy Hertzfeld, who are people I've, I would at least recognize, you know, visibly, but, but also folks like Steve Caps, who I had no idea. I, you know, I couldn't have picked him out of a lineup, but he spoke and uh, it was a really, it was a really special night. Um, Steve Hayden, who worked on uh, Shiat Day's, he was a copywriter on many Apple ads, including the 1984 ad. And he was an excellent speaker. And uh, the whole event was, was uh, shot multi-camera. And I, knowing who was involved, this, this was a filmmaker named Gabriel Franklin, who put, who uh, he and Dan Kotke put, kind of put the whole thing on uh, along with their teams, of course. 
And uh, so I'm hoping that a video of this comes out. And 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 then, yes, the Macworld All-Star Band was invited to. And we did start the show with a uh, with a short little set to kick things off. So it was an absolute pleasure to be there. Even more of an honor to take part in it. And uh, there were some Mac Geek Up listeners there. Allison and Steve uh, Sheridan from Nozilla Cast were there. Barry was there. Pete was there. Uh, it was a real it was a blast. So it was good stuff. But it meant coming back on the red eye last night to get here in time to do this show a day late, but at least we're doing the show. So pretty cool. Did you, uh, did you follow along with any of the reports of it, John or Jim? Yeah, I was watching some of the, every Mac site had, had reports uh, about the events that seemed really, really special. Um, I mean, all things being equal, I wish I could have been there, but uh, it's great that, I mean, I don't see that kind of community and that kind of, uh, you know, emotion and, and, and history happening in, in any other company in this industry. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And you know what, what surprised me was on Friday, Apple uh, had, a, I mean, their whole website was about the Mac 30th and, uh, and they even, they had an event on campus. Well, I mean, it was their, it was their normally scheduled Friday beer bash, but, uh, but they had uh, one Republic play and, and I think they, uh, Tim Cook, uh, if I if I remember the articles correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. He he got up and said some words about uh, about the back me being 30, which which is very uncharacteristically reminiscent for Apple. But uh, yeah, yeah, and they, they they apparently they put a, a banners all throughout the campus with the names of every employee who had ever worked in the company, uh, and, and so my name's up there somewhere. Uh, John's name, John Martellaro's name is, is got to be up there somewhere. Yeah. So uh, I got to get out there and try to find that before they take him down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And I saw at the, uh, so, so our friend uh, uh, Jeff Gamut, I think, got some uh, snapshots. So I think they also uh, were wearing special uh, T-shirts at the Apple stores and also had special displays. That's a, that's and, a fast. Go ahead, John. Sorry. Yeah. And also I caught some of your uh, snapshots there on the uh, on the Instagrams. Yeah. 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 Nice. Took some, yeah. took some shots while we were, well, I mean, before we played and then after when the panels were going on, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was a, it's, you know, like you said, Jim, it, it, we don't see this kind of community and emotion and, and camaraderie uh, anywhere else. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool that we get to be a part of this world. So, all right. Now that we're done reminiscing, let's us move forward and, uh, and we'll go to Louie. Louis says, Louis asks, oh, no, I've got, I screwed up. John, I, I'm, I'm all screwed up here. So uh, Louis has a series of routers in his house, and he's got one that he has put in bridge mode, uh, which is the right way to do it because he wants to have that extending his wireless network. The problem is, he says, uh, everything is working but I don't know how to access the TrendNet router that I set up in bridge mode. He says, I know it has a web interface, but I searched and can't find any straightforward way of finding this router. He says, I didn't write down what the IP address was. Um, so I'm assuming uh, Louis, you would have assigned it a manual IP, but it's possible that it's getting an IP from your DHCP server. Uh, you can, you certainly can set things up that way. Um, and of course, you don't know what it is, but I found uh, I found a a uh, a utility called Angry IP, and uh, it's at angryip.org. dot uh, 
and we'll put a link in the show notes, of course. But uh, but I believe that this will solve your problem. What it does is it scans your entire network and shows you what is uh, what responds, what is available out there. And then using some process of elimination, what you would do is just take and, and perhaps some trial and error as well. You would take the IP address that you, or IP addresses that you see answer from this angry IP scanner and just put them into your web browser. And hopefully one of them will answer as your trendnet router and then uh, write that down before you log in. And that should get you there. Uh, at least that, that was the best way I could come up with to get this. But, but as I said, I, you know, I didn't sleep. I, I took a red eye. So I'm, I'm open to ideas. John, do you have any, uh, any thoughts on this? Oh, you bet. All right. Yes. So one would be, to whip out the Google foo and what I search for Dave. And I think I found an answer. Yeah. So I search for TrendNet router web interface. Okay. And came up with a page for, now I'm not sure if this is the specific model, but in general, um, almost any router will have, uh, as, as was suggested, a mysterious IP address, which you may not remember. But looking at least for one of the models here that I found here, so I found some documentation for their wireless and gigabit router. Um, and if you dig through this at some point, um, it says, oh, and by the way, the default IP address of this guy is 192.168.0.1. And I can guarantee you that's not where it is, though, because this is not his main router. He changed it because it's in bridge mode. And that's the problem is it's it's not at its default IP it's it's a secondary router for him so so that's where he needs to that's where he needs to to be able to hunt his network and sniff around and find what this is without just typing every ip in his subnet um you know right. into into his browser but i think this this may lead you towards the range that that it it should be in right not necessarily because if he right. let's say he's using a Linksys router or an, let's say his main router is an Apple router and that he's got set up as 10.1.1.1 right uh, then that then his trendnet router would also be in the 10.1.1.x range it it all depends on what router is managing the the network as a whole because we know if his trendnet router is in bridge mode it is very specifically not managing his network so that that that's why i came up with the angry ip scanner Okay, that's no. a good one. Another thought is that you can do so. So there is a ping command that can do what's known as a broadcast ping. Oh. If you know the subnet, which you so would, for example, well, in that case, then what may work for you is that if you end a ping with a two five five, that's uh, if, if I recall my TCP IP class, uh, that that is a broadcast address, and that will actually send a ping to all devices on that particular range. Um, now, whether it replies to a ping or not, that's that's another question. Sure. Uh, some devices don't like to do that. So if, for example, you're mad and you can find out what your range is by looking in uh, well, system preferences would be one way. Look at whatever interface you're using, either Wi-Fi or Ethernet, and look at what your max IP address is and chop off the last octet. That being the last number that appears after the third period. So it might be one nine two dot if your max address is one nine two dot one six eight dot one dot one oh four then you would go to the terminal and using john's example you'd ping one nine two dot one six eight dot one dot 
two five five. Is that am I getting that right, John? Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the last tool, Dave. So you and I, I think we had received um, uh, some promos to, to look at this here. But another tool, Dave, is um, from Equinox. Is that, that did yeah? I pronounce that right? I yeah, hope you I did. did here. Yeah, but they actually have a tool called Spot Maps, which I think is similar. Does something similar is that it can help map uh, devices on your network. So that may be uh, another thing to try. Uh-huh. I don't know if they have a. Uh, demo here but i have tried it out and it does a it does a pretty good job of mapping uh the various devices that it, it can uh discover on your network oh that's a good idea i will put that in the show notes too sure yeah. now wouldn't it wouldn't the easiest path though i mean because if, if he has a an average network with lots of devices he's going to get a lot of results he's going to have to try that's right why doesn't he because i'm not sure reading his email here that he does have a, a dedicated you know static ip assigned to his it may be dynamic uh, yeah yeah so yeah. why not just go into your i believe he's using the the bell router from the internet provider go into that and grab the mac address off the trendnet router and just ah. assign it either if it's already assigned you can just check it right there or just assign a new ip address right off the bat and then you you know for sure exactly what it is with a, just a few seconds of uh configuration that's a great idea yeah in fact that would solve if you haven't yeah yeah well it would work if his router is in dhcp mode if his if his bridge mode router is in dhcp mode yeah if if it's got a statically assigned address it's not going to look for one from from his um main router's dhcp server but I mean, wouldn't it be listed in the in the main router's configuration? No, no, because if he's if he's gone in and and manually set his trendnet router to say you know dot four, then and and done that on the trendnet, then it's not going to appear in the uh, in the DHCP list of his main router. Oh right, okay. I'm thinking of okay, yes, I'm thinking of uh, of the the bell assigning the hmm. static. Yeah, and if that's working, then if if it's set up that way, yeah, no, you're right. If it if it if it's doing it that way, then that's uh, the easiest way because you'll narrow right down to it. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the final solution um, is, and I've had to do this sometimes with uh, like an Airport Express or something, is you reset it to factory mode, and then it will typically default, like I mentioned before, yeah. to like a one nine two or you know some other non routable. Um, address so you can uh, you can get to it that's true but then you need to connect but it, if you set it to factory mode it will also go back into router mode right, as opposed right, to bridge right. mode so then then you just need to be it, it, that's a great way to get there you just need to be careful that you're connecting to it and not mm-hmm. some other segment of your network that would have otherwise been bridged to it and now is not yeah yeah that's right that's right all right fun stuff Moving on to a very quick one from Vance. Vance says, I've held off on the 10.9 upgrade due to Apple Mail's wonkiness with Gmail. In particular, I use Dave's old setup with not sending down the all mail mailbox from Gmail. But now that seems to be fixed. So I'm looking to make the move. My question is, I'm currently on 10.8.5. So what Gmail configuration reconfiguration, if any, should I do prior to upgrading to 10.9 so that mail will work correctly? That is, should I re-enable Gmail's all mail folder and then upgrade to 10.9 or does the upgrade or do the upgrade then re-enable all mail or does it just work and you don't read to need, need to re-enable all mail at all anymore? Uh, the last one, 
is the right one, Vance. That's what's been working for me. Out of the gate, you're absolutely right. Mavericks required the all-mail folder to be exposed, uh, but uh, they took away that requirement. You are able to file mail now without that. And my experience, and and I think this is, I think where Maverick starts to fall down with mail is when you have mailboxes, especially in uh, an archive mailbox or an all-mail mailbox that has a ton of mail in it, you know, tens of thousands of messages. Uh, that's where it really starts to fall apart with all mail exposed. So, uh, so I've turned that off and it's better. It's still not great. Um, I, I think mail was, was, I think a lot of things, frankly, were better in mountain line, but, um, but it, it's, it's usable and mostly reliable with, um, with, with all mail hidden, just like we all had it previously in, Mountain Lion and prior. Any thoughts on this, guys? Either one of you. You you still use Gmail, um, Jim? I, I have several Gmail accounts, but I long ago forwarded them to iCloud or mm. at the time Mobile Me, uh, which is a uh, the way I prefer to do it because I assume at that point that iCloud will always work well with Apple stuff. <laughs> we won't have these issues, and then also it allows me to set up different. Gmail accounts. Uh, I have a you know a, a main primary one. I have one that I use for marketing. Per, you know, like uh, if I sign up for a newsletter, and that allows me to if, I, if anything ever gets wrong, I can just cut one of those off and preserve my my main account. So uh, I, I I mean I know I know people want to hold on to their existing addresses, but uh, if you're not tied to that particular account, you know, forwarding right to a, an iCloud account is a is a good setup. That's not a bad idea, but then you, that, I mean, you've got to wind up paying for a store, storage space on iCloud, which you may wind up doing anyway, and so it's not a big deal, right? Well, I mean, I, actually, I, that's right, I do, but it, I don't think it takes up terribly much, you know, space. It's you get five, what, five gigs for free. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I've got about fifteen gigs of mail, but but I, I realize I'm in the minority, so yeah, and you can always archive it out of there too. Correct, correct, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or well. uh I think you know this, Dave, and I think I mentioned it once before, but, you know, since you asked, um, I ditched one of my Gmail accounts. I know. Yeah. And so I had, and Hey, if anybody wants it now, well, I don't know if, I don't know if, so I basically deactivated, it was, it was John Braun at gmail.com. And I basically deactivated that account and took anything that was, uh, under that Gmail account because I don't know who did this to me, but I was getting literally or figurative no <laughs> thousands per month thousands because it usually expires the spam after a month but i was getting three to four thousand pieces of spam and its spam filter is pretty darn good i think there was only one time where it took one of your messages dave and and thought it was spam but it, it was just getting ridiculous and i would also be getting email from people that you know thought i was another john braun and i was getting stuff for realtors and uh, you know funeral arrangements and real estate it, it was crazy so I just deactivated it and I've, I've moved, uh, you know, over to uh, Yahoo uh, IMAP and I'm pretty happy so far. And uh, last I checked, they offer a, a terabyte of storage, which should uh, last me for a, a good long time. So I, yeah, it just, I just decided to pull the plug because no, it was getting too frustrating, both because of, you know, the amount of garbage uh, that I had to deal with and because of their, you know, non-standard implementation, which was still... Like I wasn't able to reorder the mailboxes in my sidebar in mail. And it was just, it was just aggravating me. So now this is interesting because, um, you, you've, you know, Gmail is, is, um, 
what's the best way to say this? Well, IMAP support in Gmail is flaky at best. It's it's a, it was never intended to be there, uh, at least not by Gmail out of the gate. So the two paradigms don't quite mesh. And uh, it's interesting that you're having good luck with Yahoo. No, no, no filing issues, no mail winding up in weird places or anything like that for you. It just it just works. Uh, pretty much. I mean, I had some issues, but I wouldn't blame them because, because I've had issues with others. Uh, the only issues I had is when I was copying folders of mail from one to the other is I would get these weird IMAP errors. But it wasn't just. Uh, Yahoo. Like I would get, you know, one error that said IMAP error, uh, both junk and no junk flags are are, uh, are part of this message. So I don't like it or server busy. But I tried the same thing to iCloud and I would get similar IMAP errors. So, uh, you know, no, no providers. And I, I was convinced it's because the, the mail, you know, I mean, I got mail for years back, just like like almost all of us. And uh, I, I'm convinced that they had gotten corrupted somehow because I would look at some messages and like, yeah, one, for example, it didn't have a from field. It just wasn't there. <laughs> and uh, IMAP, uh, I guess, you know, gets kind of picky about things. Yeah. And it was like, you know, this message is, is you know, damaged header or something. And, yeah. it, and it wouldn't copy it over. Sometimes a rebuilding of the mailbox would, would help a little bit with sure. those. But yeah. uh, now that I have everything over, the only complaint I have is that their spam is a bit aggressive right now. And that it takes stuff that I repeatedly pull out of the spam folder and it keeps, you know, uh, I got to figure out how to, how to tune that filter. But other than that, I'm, I'm, you know, pretty good with them works, you know, on iOS and, and my two Macs and everything's in sync. That's awesome. You know, it, we've been going through a lot that, that makes me think maybe that's another good direction to go. Um, we've been talking a lot about moving mail around and I started getting nervous that, uh, yes, I have my mail downloading to multiple machines. And of course I'm backing up those machines. So I do have backups of my mail. If say, everything were to get wiped out on Gmail for some reason for me, I would still have backups that I could restore from. But, um, and it hit me like, you know, we know about mail steward and why am I not using it? And so I did, I did a huge archive of everything and it's like 20 gigs, this, the, this archive that I created with mail steward. And now every day I have it re you know, update with all the new messages that have come in. And I feel pretty good about that now. So do you got while we're talking about mail here, Jim, how do you, do you archive your, your mail off? Or do you, or do you not care? I, you I not don't crazy like me. Yeah, I'm not. And I, I know I've listened to you for a long time and, and I know your, your kind of policy, which is like save everything. Yeah. And, and I, I just don't do it. I, I thought about it and I started setting up a really intricate level of folders that I plan to archive out. But then I realized most of this stuff I truly will never need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I tend to uh, every Every month I do a, a general calling of the messages and then and then every year I kind of go back and, and take out anything that that hasn't been used. So uh, I keep my my overall mailbox pretty, pretty trim, relatively trim. Yeah, I've done some. Uh, and so what, what I've done also, in addition to, you know, moving around my accounts uh, uh, to a certain degree would be to archive to an IMAP archive. A lot of my older stuff. So for the longest time, I kept, you know, like my, my TMO uh, mailbox had like, you know, tens of thousands of messages. And I'm like, do I really need them all in there? And I, I took, you know, stuff that wasn't within the last year and put it in an archive folder so that the, the main mailbox is uh, nimbler, I would imagine, since it doesn't have as many messages in it. Um, the other thing I like is the Time Machines interface, at least with Mail app, you know, the OS 10 Mail app is pretty darn slick. 
And that when I did have a problem copying messages and stuff, or I goofed something up, I could go back in time machine and go back to a prior state of mail. And, and at least my experience is that time machine, uh, you know, the mail time machine integration is pretty good. And that if you go back to a certain date, um, you know, you'll get your, your mail messages that were stored at that point in time when the backup was made. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 No, that works pretty well. All right. I want to, uh, I want to talk about our first sponsor for this show, which is Squarespace at squarespace.com slash MGG. You can visit them there and that lets them know that we sent them to you. Squarespace is, well, they do a lot of things. They are, First and foremost, a hosting uh, engine where you can put your website up there, but really uh, where the the strength shines through. And there, there it is world class hosting. I've had uh, stuff up there. I've got my Dave the Nerd blog up there and it just works. Uh, never had a problem with it. I know Ken Ray has actually moved Mac OS Ken, uh, his main page over there. And, it you know, it's rock solid hosting. However, what the you know. The added benefit is you can design your page there. They have templates where you just start. In fact, before you even give them your name, when you visit Squarespace, you just pick a template and start designing it. And you can bring in, you can use their stock photos or you can bring in your own artwork. And it, when you're editing it, it literally is easy as just dragging in from your desktop and dropping into the web browser. And now that's what your page looks like. Very, very cool stuff. Very simple to use. Um, pricing starts at just eight bucks a month uh, when billed annually. And uh, and we've got a coupon code for you that'll get you 10% off of that. This month, that coupon code, John, you're going to be really happy about this, is John's last name. It is Braun, B-R-A-U-N. So that's your coupon <laughs> for January that gets you 10% off over there at uh, at Squarespace. Very, very cool stuff. Uh, like I said, I've used it for my blog. I've used it. They have a, an e-commerce engine that uh, that I used back in the fall with a, a production that we did with one of the bands I play in. And it literally took me an hour from the time I decided I wanted to use Squarespace to do it to the time I could I, and could and did accept our first order on the web page web page there. It's totally seamless, totally integrated. And uh, you don't have to have your own merchant account. They they partner with uh, merchant services and it just all works so well. So check it out. It's uh it's squarespace.com slash MGG. And then as we said, the coupon code for March uh, for March. Why do I say March? What, what am I thinking about March? Maybe I'm fast forwarding to Macworld Expo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's January. It's currently January. And the coupon code is Braun B R A U N as in John F. So that's uh, squarespace.com slash M G G. All right. So we have Jim here and uh, and the real reason I asked Jim to come on is we've had several questions come in and we've had several discussions over uh, certainly over the years and, and especially over the last several months about managing your movie library and managing your movies such that you can put them and take your DVD collection and put it on your computer or put it somewhere digitally that you can then watch whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want without being totally locked in one way or the other. And so there's a lot of things I want to talk about, Jim, but, but maybe you can just give us an overview of how you do things uh, from, from DVD to screen 
And, uh, and, and I'm sure, you know, John and or I'll have some questions for you as we pepper through here and maybe some folks in the chat room. We'll say hi to everybody at uh, MacGeekab.com slash stream that decided to join us here on an odd Monday time slot. And, uh, and we'll take it from there. But uh, just really curious because it was relatively easy with DVDs to rip with Blu-rays. Uh, I keep hitting walls. And so you're the man I turn to. And I figure why not have this discussion where everybody can benefit? So sure, sure. Well, the, the foundation, I'll start off by saying the foundation of my media library is Plex, which is an outstanding piece of software. It started probably six years ago now as an offshoot of uh, the Xbox Media Center project, XBMC. And um, the team uh, at Plex has developed this into a really robust uh, media management and transcoder and player. And so my basic setup is I take the content off the DVDs and off the Blu-rays, and we can, we'll, we'll go into more detail on that uh, in a bit. I, uh, I rip them to a computer. I load them onto my main storage drive, which at the time, right now, is currently a, a Synology uh, disk station. Yeah. And then I use a, uh, a Mac to act as the main media server, which then I can, once that's up and running, on anywhere on my local network or anywhere in the world with an internet connection, as long as I've got a Plex Pass set up, I can access that entire library. Now, at home, I use um, the main TV, our, our, quote, home theater which is just the, the TV in the living room is a Mac mini running the Plex home theater desktop application uh, on for OS 10. They also have it for windows and uh, throughout the house. I have, I can watch it on any computer and then we have iPads and iPhones and uh, uh, Android tablets. And we can just load those up and, and, and watch anywhere on our local network. Or uh, like I said, you can even set it up with something called the Plex pass and you can watch it uh, streaming uh, over the internet. Uh, but basically there's two schools of thought when it comes to managing your, your media library. And, and I kind of go all out. I don't want any loss of quality. So I rip my stuff losslessly. Wow. And, uh, with some exceptions, but, but generally it's lossless, lossless ripping both Blu-rays and DVDs. And the, the software I use for that is make MKV, M-A-K-E-M-K-V. MKV is a, a file format container. And I prefer that over something like, um, like a, a QuickTime file uh, dot dot mov or, or dot M, m4v because it can can it can the mkv format or the M, mkv container can hold uh, high definition audio tracks and uh, higher bitrate uh, video. So I rip to that lossless file and then I dump it into Plex and then Plex has a really robust media manager where I can assign uh, it, you know it'll it'll pull down automatically based on the, the title, the metadata. But I generally go in and tweak it. I add a custom excerpt, add a custom poster. You can say what artists or what actors are involved, uh, what the plot is, things like that. And uh, once that's set up, it, it just automatically updates on the server side. Uh, but there are a lot of people who, who want to save on space, and so they would transcode those video files, not just take the raw dump, and for that, you use something like Handbrake. Okay, so um, a make MKV will just take the um, will make an MKV of the raw video 
uncompressed or non-transcoded from your DVD to wherever you tell it to save that. Is that is that is that right? It's not. That's doing right. Yep. Any it just pulls it okay. straight one bit for bit. And that's right. Uncompressed is the wrong word because the video on the DVD or Blu-ray is already compressed. But right. But it's, it's a one for one copy of the audio and video tracks. And you can choose which one you can copy everything. You can copy uh, just just the main movie and the main audio track. Sure. And you get you get one packaged file, which is usually in terms of a Blu-ray, 20 to 40 gigabytes in size. Yeah. Uh, and then you take that and you can uh, put that on your server. Now, Jim, one one question here, and I'm finding mixed mixed information on the internet here, so I'd, I'd like to get your understanding of this here. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a law that came out a number of years ago called the DMCA, or Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and I think one aspect of it was that uh, trying to um, make a backup or or crack or deprotect protected content like a DVD and, as far as I know, Blu-rays, uh, was naughty or, or illegal, <laughs> at least in the United States. Um, what is your under, the, the, but then I'm reading stuff here that suggests that they've made exceptions for making a backup. What, what, what is your understanding of, of the current law? Cause I don't want, you know, our listeners to be breaking the law because that means they get caught. And of course we don't want them to get caught. <laughs> sure. So, and again, yes, uh, everything we're talking about here, first, I'll just say, we're talking about your own discs. We're talking about movies you have bought and you own and you yes, want to back up. Absolutely. Right. Don't be that guy who goes and rents from Netflix or takes your friend's movies and rips them to your server. Cause that's, that's not cool. But uh, if we're, in terms of your own content, there are no exceptions technically to the DMCA and the DMCA covers not just movies. It's basically circumventing any form of copy protection. Now, the problem is, and this, is, and this has been adjudicated, uh, Supreme Court has dealt with several cases on the DMCA. The problem is, is that there is something called fair use in the United States. And fair use um, is derived, the, the principle of fair use is derived from a constitutional provision, uh, which is the Copyright Clause, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8. And a law in this country cannot supersede a constitutional protection or, or constitutional provision. So there's this nebulous legal gray area where if you're doing it for a commercial purpose or if you're, you know, in, in, in all the, all the courts that have addressed this, the cases have always involved either file sharing or creating uh, a product from breaking the, uh, the uh, DRM uh, to, to sell or for, for a commercial purpose. Like when Linux was first getting into the DVD game, None of the companies created DVD decoders, legitimate DVD decoders to watch Linux. So this kid created a DVD decoder uh, by circumventing the, the DRM. And that was that became a, a huge legal issue. And, but because he was taking it, he was distributing it. It was helping people break the law. And then other cases have involved things like distributing it through file sharing and things like that. Uh, to this date, there has been no case, at least that I'm aware of, no, so nothing high profile that involves someone taking a disc in their home, putting it on a server and then putting the disc away. And, and that's, so I think that's fine. And the, the professors I studied under at law school who were copyright experts were under the impression that should that ever become an issue, the courts would rule that fair use prevails over the DMCA. Uh, because again, fair use is derived from a constitutional provision. 
And the MCA is just a law and the law, unless you modify the constitution, the law can't itself modify the constitution or, or weaken a constitutional provision. So that's, that's sort of, so as long as you're doing this for yourself to make a backup or to make your content more convenient, um, you should be fine. But you know, you have to make that choice. Look at your own local laws uh, and, and, and the, the, the requirements and the, and the restrictions and, and make your own choice. But yeah, like you said, it, it this hasn't been tested in in this capacity yet. Some some guy at his house buys a movie, rips it, and the feds show up. It, that that just hasn't happened yet. So right. Yeah, so we don't know. But I, I I I what your law professor said seems to resonate with pretty much what every legal professional has said, which is yeah, it, this this likely would never make it so that's probably why this hasn't been tried yet yes but if uh to all the listeners out there if this show suddenly cuts off midstream <laughs> bail us out that's right that's right get, yeah. get them before they take us to guantanamo mgg legal defense fund we better <laughs> yeah. set that up so okay so um you, you've got these movies and 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 you've got the mkvs or uh, now, with with non Blu-ray, with regular DVDs, I could skip the MKV, the, the make MKV step and just use Handbrake if I am interested in compressing it at some level. Uh, but with Blu-rays, I cannot do that. Right. Or will Handbrake read a Blu-ray I'm- directly now? You know, I, I haven't used the shipping version of Handbrake. I'm always using the the nightly builds. Yep. Um, and I believe that they will read un, unprotected uh, Blu-ray file structures. So that what that means is, if it's a if it's a non-commercial disc, you're fine. Or if you're using something like on Windows, there's a pro- product from a company called SlySoft uh, called Any DVD, uh, A N Y DVD, and that basically in real time as the disc is in the drive. Uh, removes the copy protection or decodes the the DRM and and that allows programs like Handbrake and many others to on the fly read as if it were unprotected I don't know and I don't think there is an equivalent on OS 10 unfortunately for For, that for Blu-ray for Blu-ray right Right. so you'll have you'll have to uh, probably uh, if you're doing this on a fully Mac workflow you'll probably have to rip to an MKV first as an intermediary step. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Now it, it just for, to catch everybody up. Um, if you don't care about, or don't have Blu-ray uh, discs that you want to do this with handbrake will rip commercial copy, copy protected DVDs. If you also install a free piece of software called VLC. Um, That's right. Yes. And, and handbrake it's similar to what it does with this any dvd that you're describing on windows folks it 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 uses that engine uh to to do its decoding so okay yep. all right so um before i'm i'm curious about how you manage your library but while we're in the ripping section here i i'm curious how you deal with a problem that has plagued me over and over again so i go buy a dvd um this happened recently with the da vinci code I, I had ripped it years ago and we wanted to watch it with the kids. 
Uh, and yeah, I know you, you might question our judgment there, but but bear with <laughs> me. Um, you know, in the first couple of scenes, there's a lot of subtitles. And I realized whatever process I used to rip it did not pull in subtitles. Now, I'm not talking about a film that is 100 percent in a foreign language and we want English subtitles for everything. I just want the English subtitles for the parts of the movie that when you saw it in the theater would have had, or when I put the DVD in to watch it would have um, English subtitles because bits and pieces of the movie are in, in French or Latin or, or something that, that um, you know, that was not English. Right. So how do you, how do you deal with that part of things? Cause that has plagued me over and over again. Yeah. And I recall you asking me about this at one point too. Yeah. And, and I, I'm surprised you're having as much difficulty as you are. Um, well, so well, maybe first I'm all, not doing it right. I think that's the problem. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what we're talking about are forced subtitles uh, is technically the word for it for forced. If, so if you see, if you're in handbrake, there's a checkbox for forced only. If you're using MKV, there's a, I believe it's also called just forced on, only. And that's what you're looking for to get those, those foreign language bits from a, from a primarily prime, you know, English language film or, or whatever language the primary language is in. Sure. And when you rip it, so if you're in, M, if you're in make MKV, for example, uh, you can rip all the subtitle tracks and it is a little tricky because they're just labeled uh, English or Spanish or whatever. And it's not necessarily clear which one is the forced one. So yeah, I rip them all. And then I load up that MKV file once it's on the hard drive in VLC and I just turn on the, I go to a a part of the movie where I know there's going to be subtitles and I just turn on one subtitle after the other until I find the one that's there. And then I, uh, mux or, you know, demux those ex, uh, extraneous subtitle files out in handbrake. The problem is, is that the files you get now, I believe on DVDs, and I haven't really ripped a DVD like this in a long time, but, but I believe on DVDs, the, the subtitle format that you get on a forced subtitle will show up and be, be able to be properly burned in or, or, or at least flagged as forced when you're encoding. Okay. Uh, it sounds like you're, you're not having that experience though, but, but with Blu-rays, it's not the blue Blu-ray subtitle format cannot be read with the current version of handbrake. And so what you do there is you have to go find the subtitles on your own. And there are websites out there that basically host subtitles to movies. Uh, a couple of them are opensubtitles.org, um, subscene.com. And they're just these little, you know, 20 kilobyte files. Cause it's just text and they're time, time matched to the film. So you go and you find the right version of the film, make sure it's not the extended edition or something. You find the right version you match it to the subtitle they usually they they offer the full subtitle or just the forced part sure you grab the forced part if 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 that's what you're looking for and then you can get that and add that in when you're encoding in handbrake and it should show up in the in the subtitle um tab i guess so basically you there's a there's a button there it says add external srt and that's the file format for these these downloaded subtitles and you add that in and it as long as it's the right version, it'll match up to the film. Right. Yeah. And I, I started after you after we had this conversation a couple of weeks ago, I, I started looking to do that. And then, of course, you know, you find that, OK, well, I had the standard version of DVD, but uh, all the stuff on subscene is is from the extended. And so now I've you know got to mess with it. And I actually wound up going through and manually editing the 
the SRT text file because you can look at it. It's just a text file. It gives time codes and then what the subtitle would be for that, you know, block of time. And I actually went through and edited by hand and made my own file, which was not a fun process. Well, I mean, I, I suppose it was fun at some level. <laughs> and you, you did this for the Da Vinci Code? Yeah. That's an awful lot of effort for a pretty terrible movie. <laughs> Well, when I commit to something, Jim, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, 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 I did. I mean, I don't, and you said this was a DVD source. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I, it should have been able to pull it right off the. Well, see, I got stubborn cause I already had it. Ripped. Oh, you already had it ripped. Okay, I see. Right. Yeah, yeah. If you were ripping it again off the off the source DVD, there should be the smart the, thing would for me to have been to go and dig through the box that's completely unorganized of all of our DVDs that we ripped and have forgotten about and find that one and then just put it in the DVD player and watch it and then be done with it. That <laughs> yes, would have been the simple solution. But right. you know, that's not that's not how I did this. <laughs> Okay. All right. So it, the, the subtitles make things tricky and there's no real way to know when, if, if all you care about is say, you know, your native language, English, um, in my case, and you only would need subtitles when there are those things like, like this example, there's no way to know that this movie has that. And I then, then need to go find it other than just knowing that you need to find this right that that's true and, and what you can do is if you're if you are ripping in like M make mkv yeah uh, just grab them all you know oh, just right. just grab them all because you don't have to turn them on they're, they're not burned in they're they're mm. variable and just leave them in there and don't turn them on and then if you hit a point in where it's like a science fiction movie like with the recent star trek film and they're, yeah. they're talking to the klingons and you're like i don't understand klingon i mean i don't know i don't know why you don't understand klingon there's no excuse for that but but if you don't then you can you know then you can go and, and kind of you know flick through all the subtitles that you've got already there and and they're they're there and ready to go um so that, that's one way cuz they're not big they don't add they're a few kilobytes each they don't right. add a ton yeah, to the overall text. file yeah. exactly yeah Ah, that's okay. Okay. So just grab everything and then, and then deal with it on the fly. That, yeah. that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. That you probably just made my life a lot easier. In fact, I know <laughs> you did because otherwise I'm going to go in hand, create these stupid things. Oh, uh, Jim, could you, could you comment? We, we, we had pre-show discussion here, but, but I'd like you to comment on this. So video from what I understand is not represented as a series of pictures in that it's somewhat compressed and and I guess uh, most people would would uh, well you su you suggested this so so I guess they do have um, codecs or coders decoders that that will I guess compress video um, to make it smaller and also you know so you could, it's it's watchable um, and and I see the options in in programs like Handbrake and and to kick it off here I think you mentioned that DVDs are typically MP2s and I think Handbrake at least when I last used it typically defaults to MP4. Um, is there any reason I'd want to not use MP4 or or change these defaults um, and just understand and and I guess transcoding based on what I know is is when you're converting from one codec to another. Yeah, pr pretty much. Or you know, even transcoding can also occur if, if you're basically if you're doing anything 
to the video file other than a bit to bit transfer. So you can you can say like if you've got an MP4 and MPEG4 encoded Blu-ray disc and you just want to make it smaller, you can encode at a lower bit rate and still use MPEG4. Um, it, it's really just a matter of of picking the codec and picking the bit rate, and any change in those is technically like is, is technically transcoding. So, but yes, you're right. So DVDs are are MPEG2 generally. Uh, um, there were some early exceptions, but but MPEG2 is the video file format because that was at the time the best file format for preserving quality, but also fitting on on the size constraints of a DVD. When the first Blu-rays came out, some of the early Blu-rays were also MPEG2, uh, which was just kind of a waste because this is like a decade or more after the the standard has been set. And MPEG-4, its successor, which is also is also known as, as H.264, is a much more efficient codec. It can get you a, a better image in much smaller, a better image in the same size or the same image in a much smaller size. But there are other codecs at play here, too. There's a VC-1, which I believe was a Microsoft-backed codec, and you'll find some disks uh, encoded in VC-1. If you're using Plex, it doesn't really matter. It can handle all of those. So you just take whatever the codec is and the audio format is and you put it into an MKV container and Plex can read it. Uh, if you are going to be using something like iTunes or another media player software that requires, uh, you know, H.264, then you you just take whatever that that file format is that's on the disk and Handbrake and other rippers or converters can generally handle all the common file formats. It's just a matter of, of picking picking a bit rate that that works for you, that gives you an acceptable quality on the output. Now, Okay, and, and the bit rate is the amount of data per unit time that is being processed, right? I, I believe that's the, 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 you know, I mean, there's a technical definition to it that, that is, exceeds my layman's understanding. But, but yes, the higher, the higher the bit rate, the better the quality and the bigger the file. Okay, and and I I recall I think I had to do this in the past. I, I just wanted to mention this just to you know help people understand the process, or at least where I was going with it is that I I used to bring uh, TV shows to a friend's place, and I had this antiquated uh, uh, PowerBook G4, and I actually had to uh, reduce the bit rate of things because the processor in that was so wimpy that if the bit rate was too high, it would stutter and not play back smoothly. And I don't think that's should be an issue with any modern Mac or any modern, you know, device. Though I think, Dave, actually you've mentioned is that certain, like, for example, the Synology, which is basically a, you know, little baby computer, um, the, some of the ones with lower end processors may not be able to, to, you know, handle playing back certain video because the processor doesn't have enough oomph. Yeah, it, well, so I don't. I store everything on my Synology just like you do, Jim, but I actually run my Plex server on the Synology as well. The issue with that is when transcoding needs to happen, it's up to the processor on the Synology to do that transcoding. And and that those processors are much slower than what you would have in your Mac. Some of them, John, to your point, cannot transcode video fast enough to do it on the fly. Um, I, I presume any of them could do a transcoding, like it, say if you wanted to download the movie to your iPad to go watch offline on the airplane or or something like that, 
it could do the transcoding. It, it may take several hours before your file is ready to then download to your iPad. And it's for that reason that I use uh, in Handbrake. I use a setting that's similar. It's based on the Apple TV three default that's in Handbrake. I've, I've tweaked some things about it. I've gone with a, a fixed um, uh, fixed frame rate, I guess. I'm thinking if I'm if my uh, sleep deprived brain is coming up with the right term, but that's only because sometimes I stream to my TiVo, but I make sure that whatever format I'm saving these things in is playable natively on the devices that I most regularly play it on. So that includes my, you know, what my DLNA TV supports, what my iPad supports. And that way I don't regularly rely on my disc station or Plex in it in any capacity to do any transcoding, it just beams the, the files around and, and that that works fine for me. But I'm OK recompressing the the data that I get, whereas Jim likes to keep his at full quality so that down the road he can do whatever he wants with it. And he's not stuck with the decision he made now. Is that that, that fair, Jim? Yeah, I mean, that's 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 right. I, I have the same philosophy with my music collection, too, it is preserve it at the highest you can. Because disk disk space is plentiful and cheap, yep. And uh, and and you don't want to regret it later. But uh, but you're right too. I mean, I have the same issue with my disk station, and I've I've got a pretty beefy one. I'm using the DS twenty four thirteen plus. Oh, yeah. Yep. And uh, it's great, but it it just can't transcode the HD files in real time. And my wife in her office uses a Roku, and uh, that has to transcode pretty much everything. And she couldn't watch a lot of content. So I had to, I experimented when I got the disk station with hosting the the server on the disk station, but decided that I would just use the uh, spare iMac as a, uh, as the media server there. And then that just connects to the disk station over the network. Yep. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. And that's, that's the fast, the current fast processor uh, that, that Synology pushes the, the dual core Intel uh, chip. But yeah, yeah, to do that stuff, it's not going to necessarily be able to keep up. Now that make okay, so that that makes sense. All right, our Macs have the ability. Well, Macs with super drives because MacBook Airs don't have those, but Macs with super drives have the ability to read DVDs. They don't have the ability to read DVDs. What drive? So so it, it, it if you're going to uh, rip your Blu-ray collection, you need to buy an external drive. Um, what drive do you use, Jim, or what drive do you recommend, uh, that people, check uh, out? Uh, see, I didn't come prepared for that question. <laughs> I don't have this specific model, but, um, well, generally I, I have a dual, we're an open family here in the Tannis household. We have PCs and Macs. Ah, so okay. I generally rip on my PC, uh, because I've got three, uh, three, uh, 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 drives in it, three optical sure. drives. Sure. And I can, when I, when I go out and we get like just at Christmas, we just got a whole bunch of uh, new movies and I can rip them all, uh, all at once, right? Uh, which is great. Uh, but when I was just on the Mac, I had a Mac pro, an old Mac pro 2009. And if you had a, if you have a, a Mac pro of that era, you can buy just any old PC Blu-ray drive and it'll work. Yep. Uh, if you have a, an, a Mac that still has, a an internal slot loading optical drive there's a company called mce that has come out with slot loading blu-ray drives which you can replace uh your your existing uh cd dvd drive with a blu-ray those are nice but 
if you don't have either of those options, you just want to get something cheap, pretty much any USB or Firewire Blu-ray drive will work just fine with your Mac. It won't play movies right. I mean, unless you have specific, unless you go out and you buy, there are a few kind of off-brand Blu-ray players out there that for Mac Blu-ray software. Uh, I, I've never really tried them. So you get the, if you hook it up to your Mac, you hook up one of these external drives. It's not going to like play the movie for you right off the disc, but it'll show up as a data disc. And just like any other CD or DVD, and you can use, once it's mounted in Finder, you can then access it with all these tools. No problem. Makes sense. Yep. Makes so there's sense. really no restriction there. Just find uh, the cheapest drive you can on Amazon uh, that has a decent rating and you should be good to go. So Big T in the chat room found one that that uh, or told us about one that, that he has been using to do exactly this. Uh, and we'll put a link in the show notes. It, it's a, there's no brand. It's it, the name of it is Blu-ray USB external player, you know. Uh, but it's $42 at, at Amazon and it's, you know, obviously USB if we're, if we're to believe the name, uh, but, and it is, you know, and he says this works fine. The, um, the MCE thing, if you're going to replace your super drive, the slot loader, uh, I found it and I, I'll put a link in the show notes that that's 79. So, uh, yeah, it's a little more expensive, but right. if, if you've got a, 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 a pre 2012 iMac or a, a MacBook pro before the, the current models, you, you, it just, it's nice and clean. No yep. external stuff to worry about. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. No, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Cool. All right. I think that um, I think that answers our questions, Jim. Is there is there anything that we didn't ask you to cover that you kind of have on your list that you think, oh, if we don't say this, people are going <laughs> to, you know, <laughs> pitchforks and, and, and torches. There's actually two things. I don't All want to right. go too long, but I'll get them quick. So the first is if you do want to use, like I said before, if you're using Plex, uh, the media metadata management is already built in. If you're using iTunes and you've ripped to an iTunes compatible file, you're going to need to add your own metadata. You can do sort of the basics by just using the get info window in iTunes. But if you want to go a little further, there's a couple software programs that will let you really add some beautiful metadata. Uh, the first is iFlix, uh, just I-F-L-I-C-K-S. It's expensive. It's 25 bucks, but it's, it allows you to do a lot of like uh, rule-based um, metadata adding. So if you're doing like a whole bunch of TV show episodes from the same season, it can get them all at once. And uh, another one that's free is Subler, S-U-B-L-E-R. And uh, they both kind of do the same thing. They, they add that secret metadata that you can't edit in iTunes uh, to the file so that they appear to be just like you would if you'd bought them from the iTunes store. And those are very helpful. And the second point is, uh, in terms of Plex, this isn't going to apply to iTunes, but lossless audio is a big thing that I like. The HD, uh, Dolby True HD and uh, DTS HD Master Audio. Yep. Uh, if you have a good system, it definitely makes a, makes a difference. Huge difference. But the OS X versions of Plex cannot play back, or at least reliably play back, those HD tracks. So the, if you get make MKV and you go ahead and you buy or somehow otherwise obtain the DTS decoder DLL file from a commercial software product like CyberPower DVD or whatever, ArcSoft Media, Media Center, you can then decode and transfer as you're ripping these DVDs, the lossless tracks to lossless FLAC audio. And FLAC works on OS X and it can be transcoded for your iPad and everything. Uh, so that way you're getting a lossless high bitrate audio track 
in Flack without having to do anything. You just set it up once and then you just check a box and anytime it auto detects a lost track, it converts it to Flack for you. Ah, uh, that's cool. Yep. That's cool. Jim, thank you so much. That's awesome. I really yep. appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay, cool. Uh, I think we still got some time to go through a couple of questions here, John. Maybe we'll, um, we'll run through, uh, well, well, you know, we'll, let's, let's do this section on follow-ups here, John, to, uh, to, to push out the, the kind of lingering questions that we had from Mackie Keb 484, which as far as I know was the show prior to this one. And that's, uh, that's only because I, th- I think of time as a linear, uh, deal, but I, I could be wrong about that. Um, in this universe, yes. Okay. All right. That's right. Last I checked. Okay. So Daniel says, uh, going off the discussion, the two of you were having about wireless channels. I fired up the OS 10 wireless diagnostics and was presented with this result that says the best channels for me to use are two or three. It says clearly that is between my neighbors one and my other neighbors six. And my current router is at channel 11. Did I not grok something correctly? No, Daniel, you did. I I know our conversation got a little convoluted. So I will state this as simply as I can. Uh, Based on our own experiences here and the reports from several other listeners, the utility is answering the question of what channel should I use if I add something to the existing mesh, which means you're using 11 one of your neighbors is using six. Another one of your neighbors is using one. So the three preferred channels are not available. So it's then saying, okay, well, you've got to go with second best. So that's going to be channel two or three. If channels two or three are used, it's then going to say, okay, well, second best now is channel eight or nine. So if you had turned off your router and run wireless diagnostics again, it would have told you to use channel 11. So if you're, if you're looking to answer this question, confirming that what you are currently doing is right, turn off your router before you run the, uh, the, the diagnostics, or at least know that it's going to factor your router in. It's looking to tell you where you could add something to what currently exists. And that, I think that that should get us there. All right, John. Now, in 484, we had another thing that we talked about. My The thing I brought up, well, I guess the listener brought it up, but it, it plagues me too. And it was about YouTube and YouTube videos starting to play and then pausing on our networks. And Brett says, uh, hello, Dave, Mr. John F. Braun and Pilot Pete uh, from your northern friend. Uh, uh, let's see. In your last delightful and informative episode, a fellow fine geek said he or she was having problems with just playing back YouTube videos or streaming them to be more precise, with extreme buffering problems after an initial good handshake. I, too, have had this same problem, and only on YouTube as well. Previous builds of YouTube did not yield this problem until about six to nine months ago when I noticed it. Others complained back to 2009, but probably their router settings, etc., which we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, there are tons of complaints recently on the Internet about it, and it involves Google Play on Windows as well as on YouTube on Windows computers. So it appears most are having trouble Due to our Google allowing our ISPs to use caching systems to play the content. And this is where the problem lies. There are articles on the web to fix it, but they are greatly involved. He gave us a link. He says, here's a link to a a pocketables article where I found the best explanation of the problem and was unaware. Google and our ISPs allowed this. So uh, the idea and and, uh, we will put this link in our show notes. 
the concept is that oftentimes uh, this problem is caused by you not actually requesting the video from YouTube. You're requesting it and your internet provider is caching content from YouTube uh, or at least trying to cache content from YouTube. And you may be watching a video that does not exist in their cache. So things get a little convoluted. This pocketables article uh, goes through some convoluted steps to work around this. Uh, but essentially what you're doing is telling your, um, uh, your computer or your router, depending on how you want to configure things to completely ignore what your providers uh, DNS servers are telling you and just go straight to YouTube and manually map that. And, it, and you're using something called the hosts command uh, on your Mac. Or again, if you want to, uh, program your router to do this as well. But, uh, but we will put the link in there because it walks you through it. It's got instructions for windows as well, but it definitely does have instructions for the Mac and it involves editing a text file from either the terminal or, or your preferred method. And will then all, all nearly permanently ensure that when you go to play something from YouTube, it goes directly to YouTube and not to one of these edge caches that Google or your provider uh, is putting near you. So that's that. But if that doesn't work, or perhaps before you try that, John, you found something. Well, you know what, Dave, you know, what's really interesting is what I found here appears to not exist anymore. Seriously. I just clicked on the link and it says page not available. Now I found an article a number of days ago and it was suggesting that Google is going to be implementing a uh, YouTube uh, kind of, certification program or quality rating and that they're, you know, going to be suggesting, you know, where, where you can go to get YouTube video that performs well. And it had a a bunch of options, some of which, and I think I suggested one, you know, they they were given a bunch of suggestions about how you could improve your YouTube playback um, if it wasn't up to snuff. And one of them, you know, that resonated with me because I think it suggested is make sure you got the latest version of the flash player since that's often what's being used. No, the article went away, so I'm kind of unprepared here, but they, uh, no, they, they touched on things that you and I, I think, had already mentioned, you know, a different DNS provider, uh, you know, it could be a caching server, uh, it could be your ISP um, doing some wacky stuff there. Um, no, again, unless, no, I, again, the article, John, it's not here. It, was, it was a good one to talk to. It had about six. John, yes. Can you hear yes. Jim? Yes. Go, Jim. Oh, it's, I was saying it's, it's working on my end here. I can, I can go through the, the options here if you can't see it. Um, but Wait, they, they really? Re- Support Google Com YouTube checklist. What What's yep. at the end there? Did I? Okay, I, well, I, go ahead. <laughs> on my end, it says page not available. I, I, I don't sure. understand. Well, 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 they recommend they recommend changing your video quality. Obviously, if you can lower the video quality if you're having buffering issues, but that's, of course, not ideal. Uh, they want you to just check your browser and they've got some links here uh, uh, to to making sure making sure your browser's up to date. Reload the page, uh, update Adobe Flash, enable JavaScript and make sure that's uh, up to date. Uh, clear any cache. I know Safari, if you're a Safari user, cache is a huge issue. Um, restart the, or, you know, restart your home network, uh, they say here. And then, of course, uh, just double check your, your bandwidth and things like that. So I'm sure we'll have this, we'll have it in the show notes. We'll figure out why it's not working for John, but it's, uh, it seems to be up for at least here in Erie. 
Yeah, I'm I'm having trouble loading it too. I'm going to try it one other way. But uh, Jim, can you shoot a PDF of that uh, on your end just in case it's on its way down? Oh no, it came up for me. Okay, I got it. I, I, I've got the PDF, no problem. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. As far as I can tell, we got the same URL here. Yeah, I pasted it in. You pasted it in. But again, when I click on it, it says uh, yeah. page not found. No, I had it. It, it did not work for me before Jim told us all about it. So, uh, so something's going on there, but we'll save a PDF of it. And, uh, okay. Yeah. But they're all good suggestions. I yeah. think, uh, you know, it may still not help. Yeah, but, but it's but it worth does, running through. Yeah. But it does bring up a interesting, uh, point in that I, I did find an article, uh, you know, or again, YouTube is going to be doing some sort of certification process to authorize either individuals or, you know, or say that certain individuals or groups. Uh, I don't know why you keep cutting out there, John. Jim, are you still with me or is this uh, uh, are capable of serving up? I have lost audio. Anybody there? We all lost audio or I lost you guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it went dead silent. I now hear you. Yeah. Okay. You hear me? I yeah. hear you. Good. Say, okay. say that again, John, because you, you went silent when Hello. you said you Hello. found an article. Then, I'm here. Okay, we're out of sync then, aren't we? Uh, at least it sounds like John is out of sync. Jim, are you with me? Yes. John, are you with me? I'm with you. Okay, explain that again. What You found an article that, that said YouTube was doing what? Uh, there was an article from Google where they were talking about a uh, YouTube certification program. All right. And that's where actually where I got that other link. Yeah, here we are. YouTube certification program. Okay, Let's cool. See. So I'll paste that one. So again, I get it's just, you know, widely recognized problem. And I guess everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else here. So I guess they're, they're you know, trying to step in here to, you know, see if they can level a playing field, which, which is nice. That's good. But it sounds like it's again, a problem it's they, they created on their own um, by encouraging everybody to cash all their stuff. I mean, I get it. You know, we've got all this peering, so we might as well use it. But, um, you know. It sucks when you can't watch cat videos or the joke about uh, <laughs> the joke about the guy that that played what's new pussycat 21 times in a diner. I mean, that's funny stuff. You don't want to miss that out, miss out on that. So. All right. Uh, yeah. So I think we're going to uh, take our cues from the fine folks at uh, at Skype there or the bandwidth gods or whoever it is that's messing with us here, John yeah. and Jim. And, uh, and we'll start wrapping things up. Jim, again, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. This is long overdue as far as I'm concerned. So it's well, my pleasure. And, and if anybody has any, uh, any questions uh, about any of the things we talked about, I love talking media servers. So just uh, send me a tweet at uh, MGG Jim. There it is. And if you want to send John a tweet, he is John F. Braun. Uh, if you want to send the show a tweet, it is Mac Geek Gab. And if you want to send me a tweet, that is uh, I'm Dave Hamilton. That's uh, twitter.com slash if you aren't already on Twitter in some other capacity. So uh, so that's that. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the address that you can send email to the show, which uh, is read by John. And I, of course, if there's something uh, that you send that's relevant to what Jim talked about, we're happy to pass that along to Jim as well. So that that's one way. Dave, I don't think I was paying attention. Did you say feedback at MacGeekab.com? I'm pretty sure I did. Jim, what did you hear? 
No, no, guys, come on. It, you got, you, how many years have you been doing this? It's feedback at MacGeekApp.com. That it is. You can also call us at 206-666-GEEK, which Jim is... Oh, Jesus, I don't know. <laughs> 4335. There we Thank are. Thank you, John. <laughs> Can't put me on the spot like that. I, I figured, what? why not, right? We're all friends here. Uh, you can find the show notes at MacGeekab.com. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MacGeekab. On Google+, Plus because Google+, Plus is crazy, uh, we are plus.google.com slash plus Mac Geek Gab podcast. I don't know why they wouldn't give us Mac Geek Gab. No one else has it. Um, it's bizarre. But anyway, I hope Google, not. No, no one else does. And we're, uh, it, it doesn't exist if you go to plus Mac Geek Gab. But we have plus Mac Geek Gab podcast where you can find not only the uh, Mac Geek Gab uh, Google Plus page, but we also have a Google Plus community, which has been awesome. Uh, it's so good to have you folks out there with us. You're posting cool links you found. You're asking questions. Everybody's contributing in. It is it instantly has become the best community source that we have ever attempted here. It blows away forums, blows away Facebook. So, uh, so visit us over there. That's good stuff. At, yeah, uh, for at the five Google people Plus. that are using it. <laughs> There's a lot of people using Google Plus, dude. It's way better than Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's, you're entitled to your opinion. It's okay to embrace something new. Uh, and I think we're going to move this show. I, I wanna, I'm going to experiment a little bit with it uh, this week, but uh, my goal is to move us away from Skype and start using Google Hangouts if we can get away with that. Because um, I think that might work better for us for a lot of reasons. For the uh, for the recording of the show and, and, and the stream for those that want to that want to watch and follow along. Uh, and speaking of the stream, that is at MacGeekGab.com slash stream. Uh, we have several people to thank again. Uh, I'll thank you, Jim, and you can visit Jim uh, at TechReview, T-E-K-R-E-V-U-E dot com. I highly encourage you to check Jim's site out. He's uh, It's fantastic stuff you're doing over there, man. And I, I know you're, uh, you're, you're, doing, you're doing yeoman's work. Uh, doing it all yourself and all that stuff, so it's uh, it's amazing what you're what you're accomplishing. I love it. Oh, thanks. Appreciate yeah, it. yeah, and uh, of course Michael Johnston, who takes this show and converts it to AAC and adds all the chapters for us and for you. He does his we communicate we have communicators podcast, which I encourage you to listen to, as well as his getappler.com site. Uh, of course, Cashfly c a c a g f l y dot com provides all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you podcast marketplace as we said squarespace with the code brawn here in january to get you 10 percent off bb edit from barebone software text expander and pdf pen from smile of course gazelle with a uh, place to sell all your stuff turn it into cash all through the backbeat media podcast network jim any uh any lasting advice that you'd like to share with uh our listeners and fans and friends before we sign off for the day well, you know, rip rip your DVDs, rip your Blu-rays, rip the universe for all I care, but uh, don't get caught. Mm-hmm.